Hey everyone, and welcome to the 77th episode of The Liam McCollum Show. This episode is the first interview recorded live in person with my guest, so definitely go check out the recording on YouTube or Odyssey if you prefer the video format. Otherwise, you can subscribe to me on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of the other podcatchers. My good friend Spencer Whitaker joined me in this episode to talk with Ethan Holmes about the recent developments in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Ethan explains the background of the conflict and talks about Russia's recent military campaigns in Ukraine. This episode was recorded on February 24th, 2022. All right, everyone, and welcome to the Liam McCollum Show. We are doing an in-person podcast for the first time. I've got Ethan Holmes with me. Again, I had him on my previous interview, um, the last interview I did two weeks ago, talking about the events that are transpiring in Russia and um, uh, the United States' response to it. And we're kind of just going to do a recap and an update to the developments that are going on. I also have my guest co-host, Spencer Whitaker, on with me tonight. A uh, really great friend, and um, most of my political conversations happen with him, so I figured it would be awesome to bring him on and kind of have more of a conversation tonight than um, my usual interviews, which are typically just me on Zoom with someone and kind of interrogating them. So, uh, Ethan, um, I, just to kind of like recap from our last interview, do you want to um, kind of just start, I guess, like start where you think is on and just recap what we talked about in the previous podcast, like the buildup, uh, the military operations. Uh, yeah, of course. And uh, of course, I'd like to thank you for having me back on the podcast. Um, I know it's sooner than expected, but developments happen sooner than expected. So alas, here we are. Um, I also appreciate the freedom to start where I want because um, I know this is like a big situation. It's a lot to digest, right? Um, and so I'm going to try and piecemeal it here together. So try and follow along the strings here. Um, so for the past really several months, since late 2021 here in early 2022, Russia built up a large amount of forces on its Western border with Ukraine. Um, well over 100,000 troops, you know, 100, greater than 150,000 troops even, I believe, at its peak um, nowadays. Um, and it sparked a whole greater European security crisis, and particularly a security crisis for the state of Ukraine. Um, so, how do we how do we end up in this big standoff situation? Uh, well, that's a really, really long and complicated story, but let's just try and bring it back just in these last couple months. So, we have a standoff between Russia and we have Ukraine. Now, a lot of people look at Ukraine and wonder why Russia would be picking on someone so much seemingly smaller than themselves, they're geographically smaller, their population is less, um, they have you know, a smaller economy. Um, and so it really appears to be a at least major regional power holding a, a much smaller um, state on the continent. Uh, however, the reason why it's a complicated standoff and a battleground between Russia and the West is because the West backs Ukraine. Uh, the West has democratic aspirations for Ukraine. They'd like the people to be able to elect the leaders they want to, have the future they want to, uh, determine whether they join organizations like NATO, um, whether they want to be part of Russia again, which doesn't seem to be the popular consensus um, in, in many places in the country. Uh, and so the West has sent money, they've sent particularly defensive aid and arms to Ukraine. Uh, and that really, really worries Russia, because the more that Ukraine enters uh, the Western sphere of influence, the less it's in the Russian regional sphere of influence. 
And over the past several decades since the fall of the Soviet Union, the uh, Russian sphere of influence has been slowly, slowly chipped away by organizations like NATO in the West, this kind of Atlantic sphere. Um, the reason why NATO is at the center of all this, why that's kind of recurring buzzword here, um, is because NATO membership would kind of be the last stride, kind of be the nail in the coffin for uh, much of Russia's ambitions in the eastern part of Europe, on the Eurasian continent generally. Um, and they feel that they were promised that NATO expansion would occur in Eastern Europe. After the fall of the Soviet Union, there's negotiations on how to handle the whole dissolution of what was the world's second superpower, you know, we went from a bipolar world to a unipolar world, um, the so-called end of history, as Francis Fukuyama put it. Um, and if you could show Fukuyama today, you never would have written the end of history whatsoever. Um, but we went from a bipolar to a unipolar world, and this Western sphere was very heavily involved in how the Soviet Union broke up. Um, and several very consequential decisions came after that, namely the geography of Ukraine proper, which included pretty much all the territory that was given at various points in Soviet history by different Soviet leaders. Um, but a major point is that Ukraine gave up the nuclear weapons which were kept in Ukraine, and a large part of the Soviet nuclear arsenal was kept in Ukraine. In exchange for protection, they said, we'll give up our nukes so that there's not just a random smaller tier country around with nukes. But in exchange, we expect to, to have defense uh, taken care of for us. You know, if we're going to give up the biggest defense tool a country possibly have, we need some guarantees. Um, and so you see where that guarantee today, that, that promise to defend Ukraine's right as a sovereign nation and to defend what it's given in this post-Soviet era and try and make something, you know, better out of it in, in the Western Enlightenment sense. Um, that comes into conflict with the promise seemingly made to Russia to not expand NATO influence further and further the border. And so the standoff really brought to light these, these deeper tensions, these unresolved conflicts really that have been there for a while, but haven't yet boiled over until seemingly this very point. Um, and so, of course, recently, and I'm sure we'll deep dive into this as well, um, we've gone from that buildup to now a full-scale um, military operation taking place across Ukraine, um, uh, missile strikes, troop movements, um, we see aerial activity, of course, all sorts of, you know, modern warfare taking place across Ukraine. That probably here immediately, but uh, that's the 30,000 foot view, I hope. Despite being a little rambling all over the place, that really sets us up for, for why the buildup and now this military operation is so important and how this conflict between the West back in Ukraine and security and defense and sovereignty and Russia trying to maintain its post-Soviet sphere of influence as a, as a diminishing regional power, how that, that, that tension is really at the core of this whole thing. Yeah, so last night when I was just kind of watching what was happening on Twitter, um, I, I was talking to my friend Ruth Coverdale about this today, how it, it really, the last time I felt this way was when um, the United States killed Solomon, where it was like this, this event where we really we had no idea what was going on. We, there were rumors that, um, you know, at, at the time in, in Iran with, with that uh, assassination, um, shortly after Iran's response, there was kind of this question of whether or not um, UAE, the UAE had taken off and there were jets in the sky. And like it was just like no one knew what was happening. Um, so now that we're kind of 24 hours from that, um, 
from what happened. Uh, I, I wonder if we can just kind of go go through exactly what happened because at, like instantly people were were calling it um, that they, they were calling it full scale war. We were going to it was World War Three, um, and and now it, it, it seems it was very limited. We didn't really know at the time what what was um, happening, but it seems like there really is uh, a strategy here that, that we've talked about personally. Um, so you just want to break down what Putin and and Russia did last night? Yes. So let's actually take this slightly further back from just last night to let's say Sunday, Monday. Um, I believe it was Monday on President's Day. Putin announced that he was going to formally recognize the Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic. Now, these are those breakaway, self-declared autonomous regions in the east of Ukraine in the Donbass. So Donbass is short for Donetsk Basin. Um, it's a very um, resource-rich area of Ukraine. Um, it's dominated by Russian speakers. You know, there's a large Russian ethnic population there as well. And so that's why they feel this affinity uh, more towards this Russia, more so towards Russia in a large chunk of the population as opposed to the, the Ukrainian state. Uh, so Putin formally recognizes these breakaway republics as legitimate autonomous political entities. Um, and that really starts a snowball of what's resulted. Really, really quick on that, I'm, I'm wondering, um, so, so these regions actually, did they hold the plebiscite? They, they actually voted to separate themselves because they are more, um, they are kind of more pro-Russian. What, what is exactly kind of like the background there? Why did uh, Putin feel comfortable declaring these these countries or these regions independent? That's a good question. It really was, in many senses, it seems a long time coming. They were already de facto recognized and supported by Russia in many senses. Um, but it's the formality of it in the global stage that was really of concern. So. The situation with those areas really escalated and started in 2014, 2015 there, um, along with the um, integration of Crimea back into the Russian Federation. Um, you saw strong pro-Russian sentiment across the country. You had the revolutions, the regime changes going on in Ukraine at the time, from a relatively Russian-friendly regime to one uh, much more friendly towards the West and towards NATO. And that's really what once again, revealed some of these underlying tensions and how Ukraine and Russia were formed and, and how they relate in this political sphere. Um, and it's something, you know, it, it shouldn't be a controversial admission at all. You know, we can recognize, I think, um, very clearly in the post colonial world in, in Africa and Asia, we drew very imperfect borders, which led to lasting conflicts due to, to imperfections in the political resettlements of negotiations. And the dissolution of the Soviet Union was the dissolution of an empire, frankly. It's, it's, it's very, very similar in that sense. So, so to recognize that perhaps in the, in the reformation of these post-Soviet states, there were some uh, things that in the long term going to boil up. That's not um, outside of the realm of possibility, I think, at all. It shouldn't be um, an admission um, that's controversial just to say that maybe these, these lines were drawn or at least they were drawn in a way that we now have to um, account for now and press in the present day, even if there was no way maybe to see the hindsight or something. There should have been a fair bit of foresight um, on the solution. So, 
And I think we're going to get into kind of world power dynamics, but um, that's a long-winded way to answer your question about next and the cons. Again, it goes right back to 2014. It really is just de facto dictation now in the recognition of them as autonomous political entities with their own leadership, diplomatic, um, you know, relations with the Russian Federation. Mm -hmm. And to, to tap you in, um, did you were you following this as it happened, and, and did you have any? Uh, I guess what were your thoughts as it were as it was happening? I, I wasn't really talking with you during during all of these events as it was transpiring. Yes, so like um, obviously, I, coming from a, a more Western centric perspective, like I'm not as very involved nearly or as up to date um, on those things. So it's much more. Uh, my perspective then is uh, what what is my like like how how is this and not not necessarily selfish but like how is this affecting me but it's more so like how how are my worldview shifting and how are, are my perspectives being challenged by you know the events here and it's an interesting situation to see because uh, like Ethan was saying it seems to be the result of many you know many past mistakes made by various regimes you know both on the Soviet side both on our side both on you know the whole um, you know, reformation of the, those states from that empire, and then also in the foreign foreign affairs between the United States and the Russian um, Russian group. But, but, but like since the, you know, since the 19, early nineteen nineties, when all this was going on, you know, it's only been thirty four years since the has been like recognized as that. And in that time, there's been different um, different arguments around a lot of these states and. The interesting thing is now is now we're sitting here after the action has you know kind of come to a head last night and it's looking back and there's so many different things you can point to to say oh this was wrong this was wrong this was wrong they made this mistake you know we did draw lines right let's kind of ethnic you know variabilities in regions but it's now like okay, well, what now like how how then do we resolve these things do we resolve these through you know military action do we let these you know Russian uh, Rush, ethnically Russian areas that are wanting to, you know, have separatist um, sentiments. Like, where, where does the sovereignty, sovereignty lie in these situations? Is it lie with these, you know, these countries that were created from the dissolution of the Soviet Union? Is it lie with, you know, the country Russia where they originated? Is it lie with people individually, you know, in um, Donbass region? Like, if they want to be part of Russia, then, you know, my, my initial sentiment is, okay, let them be part of Russia. Like, that's, you know, it's kind of like a self-determination kind of aspect. And then certainly all the way back to where I come from, you know, just as more or less your average American following along to these, you know, from various news sources, it's like, what role have we played? And then now, like, obviously, all these mistakes have happened, like, we need to learn from them. So going forward, like, what, you know, there's, there's a question of what right do we as individuals or as a country have to interfere in any of these? Um, things and there's also the question of like, okay, we need to like not be making more mistakes. Like you know, you can't compound this mistake with a bigger mistake because you could lead to all these you know talk of World War Three and this and that. Some of it's true, some it's false, some it's you know alarmism. But you know, mistakes that we didn't think we were making 30 or 40 years ago, you know, are now all of a sudden you know thousands of people are dying as a result of that. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting point about the the sovereignty there is. Um, just this idea that, like, often what I hear from people who are um, kind of defending Ukraine is that uh, 
we're protecting or we should protect their territorial integrity and their, their sovereignty. And this is a sovereign nation that, that should be defended and it has its own interests. Um, and, and that really is kind of like made more complicated when you put it into perspective with what happened in 2014 with um, the coup and also with this, this region declaring itself kind of more pro-Russia and, and then not necessarily wanting to associate with uh, um, the government that was established in 2014. So, uh, you and have both hit on the, I think, the, the key point here, and that's this this tension around our seemingly Western Enlightenment value of national self determination, uh, the right for people to decide who their government is, and our interest as a leading geopolitical entity on the world stage, uh, who sometimes this right to national self determination may conflict with. Um, or the processes of determining which we might disagree with. Um, so it's it really there's a big conversation we have, and I hope we have it about what this whole situation around Russia, Ukraine, NATO, and the West is is meaning for the world stage abroad. You know what what does this mean for the the seeming end of history that was predicted? You know, is this truly a pivotal moment? from a unipolar world order to something much less certain. Do you want to break down kind of just like what like what you mean or what was meant by end of history, kind of like what, what the history is there? I, I'd love to sort of race back to that, but mm-hmm. I did want to uh, finish from like the, the events of the last couple of days. Yeah, go ahead. Um, just so we don't like lose that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it's very important. Yes, very important to what's going on. Uh, so Putin essentially recognizes the um, domestic people's public and and in response, um, the West rolls out its kind of first rounds of, um, of sanctions and other economic measures, defense measures. Um, and one of the important things is that they call a meeting of the United Nations Security Council, which Russia happens to be the chair of, which will be uh, of note here. And so the UN Security Council's meeting here, you know, the US um, had uh, announced in response to the decision by Putin's order to recognize these republics. Had announced a series of sanctions. Um, they essentially shut down any opportunity for the Nord Stream pipeline um, between Russia and Germany to go online. The kind of that project is now, in a sense, a hunk of steel laying at the bottom of the sea. Um, and so, while the UN Security Council is meeting about this, um, Russian President Vladimir Putin goes on um, air and starts delivering a speech um, about this whole situation, in which he says. That in order to protect um, Russians living in eastern Ukraine to um, prevent genocide, or I would, if he's going to be more accurate, I would say genocide might be what he really means um, in that region. And he vowed to de denazify Ukraine and to demilitarize Ukraine. Um, and we can kind of get into what those both mean respectively as pretty specific verbiage in, in this situation. Um, but he gives, he delivers that address, and he also delivers um, lots of, of points of perspective from his administration about why they are so interested in Ukraine. It goes deep into their history, the perspectives on how Russia views Ukraine, at least from Putin and maybe the Kremlin, more broadly their view. Um, and they also, of note, announce a special military operation in Donetsk and Luhansk to assure their sovereignty that they had just recognized as breakaway nations um, and also uh, just respond to any potential Ukrainian activity to protect um, the Russians that um, Putin was talking about 
uh, reportedly being persecuted by the Ukrainian government or, let's say, reportedly being Russian. Um, and we also see then not just military operations in the Donbass, though, in those regions. So that's kind of what caught people off guard is instead of just having a peacekeeper operation, as Putin referred to it, there in those eastern regions, we saw a series of strikes all across Ukraine. Uh, these strikes largely targeted air bases, other pieces of military infrastructure, communications infrastructure, um, trying to take out their navy, their air force, their ability to, to act as a military very, very It's uh, not an unexpected military maneuver, but it was unexpected at the time because Moscow Putin had only seemingly announced a special military operation, peacekeeping operation in those um, regions that he had just recognized. So that occurs as the UN Security Council is meeting. And the meeting kind of goes um, to hell. Uh, the Ukrainian um, envoy there uh, to the Security Council of the UN um, gets in a spat with the um, Russian envoy of Enzia to the UN, who is chairing this UN Security Council meeting, uh, where pretty much roundly most of the other uh, Western nations are condemning the actions um, and expressing outrage over what they're getting from reports coming in from Ukraine. Um, and Nebenzia you know, holds the standard Russian line on the Russian perspective on why they're engaging in the operations that they are. Um, and that kind of leads us to where we are now today, where over our night in the United States, over the day um, there in, in Ukraine, we saw a wide array of military operations. Uh, once again, they seem to be relatively targeted in scope. It's not like there's just massive, you know, Blitzkrieg tank and, uh, you know, rank and file soldiers following behind, rolling in everywhere. It does seem to be a lot of aerial activity. Um, lots of, of missile strikes and other um, kind of lengthy military jabs, so to speak, to important infrastructure. Um, but of course, that can all change. That could be changing right now as we speak, and we're just not aware. Um, but that's kind of, once again, in a gist, in a nutshell, what's happened over the last couple of days. Who recognizes these frequent um, republics? Also, the West launches a first round of kind of like these initial light handed, you know, slap on the wrist sanctions. Um, Putin, for whatever reason, makes the call then, whether it's because it's a, it's a you know, sunk cost kind of thing, or because he truly feels there's nothing to do at this point, um, or he didn't, he didn't respect the Russian response, perhaps, um, and he, he launched the, the greater military operation across Ukraine. Uh, and as neutral as I can, that's the, that's the situation we are in at the present moment. Reports continue to come in about various sanctions in response from West entities now. So we go from Russian buildup, Russian recognition, Western sanctions, Russian military operations, more Western sanctions now. Um, and so it's only, we're going to see whether sanctions and statements are greater than sticks and stones, um, but only one of them breaks the bones of the people see by their logic and rhetoric invading the uh, sovereignty. But the U.S. has vowed, my administration has vowed, U.S. troops will not be in Ukraine fighting Russian soldiers. Uh, they're only going to act defensively in NATO allies. So do you, I mean, do you take anything away from the fact that, like, Putin decided right now to take these regions or to declare these regions independent? Like, is there anything that changed? What was the pretext? Is it, um, I, I know that we weren't having any diplomatic talks with them while we were accusing them of um, invading it. Yet. We were saying that they were going to invade. We said deadlines for it, really. We said it going to happen on Wednesday. Um, that they actually set dates for it, which I found strange. Um, and then the, the days came and went, and then apparently, from what I was reading, um, 
we weren't actually meeting with food and, and discussing at the time. So do you think that like the fact that we weren't having any diplomatic talks or um, like, like what do you think kind of triggered this? It won't, and I know you, you don't really like to read into uh, Putin's, Putin's mind, but um, can you at least, do you, have, do you have any thoughts as to what may have happened? Yeah, well, um, a couple of so you're right. I don't like to engage in mind things, especially like criminologists in the Putin mind, mind society. I don't consider it a great use of my time. It's usually, you know, speculation. Um, one thing to note, though, is, is diplomatic discussions, at least on the surface, were going on. We didn't engage in a series of discussions through ambassadors and various uh, forums and, and formats um, with the Russians, with the Ukrainians, and with um, the European continent writ large. Uh, and as the State Department, we, uh, it was all kooky theater on Russia's part, and they were um, allegedly only playing the, uh, the parts of diplomacy, so it's going through the motions. Uh, no real intention. Um, now, Russia did very notably start out this whole thing early on by giving a um, pretty clear list of European security and they were wanting to see, discuss, and take uh, an action taken on, on the continent that they thought would contribute to their um, security, geopolitical stability, etc. Um, the West openly said that most of it are non-starters. This is the word that they used, that non-starters are not going to go anywhere. Um, there were some limited areas where they did recognize like, further cooperation, um, I believe in like, you know, missile control kind of realm stuff. Um, but in terms of Russian proposals, like um, affirming that Ukraine would join NATO, uh, the West absolutely refused to, to get into. Um, NATO was very uh, firm in its resolve and having an open door policy that any country who meets the prerequisite requirements and wants to join NATO and join NATO. So, you know, if the other players approve, of course. Um, and so, having the, the, the diplomatic discussions break down is what it seems more like to me. Um, you can say that the, the attempt wasn't sincere, there was no uh, authenticity in the Russian attempts to gain diplomacy, um, but there were certainly, at least on the surface, Diplomatic discussions and engagement with pretty clear ideas in mind. Um, once again, you could argue they knew that the West was going to say most of them were non starters and that it was totally not possible. Um, but there, there was at least on the surface a diplomatic. Um, now, those did obviously break down. Um, the US is now saying that um, Biden is certainly not going to meet with Putin. Um, Lincoln, our Secretary of State, is not going to meet. Um, with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister's counterpart, um, until he has reacted. So it's, we have taken a step back in high level diplomacy, but the US does continue to reiterate that diplomacy is still on the table. There is still a diplomatic path. It's just much, much more difficult now, um, given that they have now imposed a, a sweeping array of sanctions, um, as they would call it, unprecedented array of sanctions. Um, and Russia. There, um, Ukraine. So, interesting situation. Yeah, so we, we might end up having um, some unstable Wi Fi once in a while, but I, I don't know. We've had some strange connection over the last couple of days, but uh, it cuts out and then also back in. So, hopefully, you guys aren't missing too much. Um, but I'm wondering, Spence, if, if you just um, if, if you have any questions for Ethan or kind of what you think of. Everything and um, just what your from what your perspective is, uh, just what 
because I mean, like I've I've talked with Ethan about this before, so I feel like I, I kind of know where he's going with things. So it's hard for me to um, kind of look at it from a more objective and bird's eye view. So I'm wondering what you think. Yes, yeah, so I, I have two questions, and the, and the first one is about sanctions, because obviously coming from a kind of purely American Western perspective, say so what what is being done on, on our half. So when you talk about these sanctions that are being levied against um, Russia. Are these against economic? Are these, you know, like akin to a blockade? Are these against, you know, their trade with other countries? Like, how, what does it impact them, you know, as a nation? And how does it impact their citizens? Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a great question. I should have been more detailed, but I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to be more detailed. Um, they hit the financial sector, is one area. So they're cutting off um, the ability for large Russian banks, um, like uh, Vitsa Bank, Spare Bank, and the like, which are very large Russian financial institutions. Yeah, like our, like, Wells Fargo, whatever. Um, and so those have um, restrictions being placed on them right now, which I think they said it's a trillion dollars worth of the Russian economy is like within these banks. So it's, it's certainly from um, view of sanctions, like it's supposed to be pretty big, especially with the long term. Um, also, access to goods, uh, export control is another thing that's been probably discussed, particularly in the um, high-end technological growth. Uh, so Russia um, relies a decent amount on imports from the Western world for a lot of its high-tech products, um, which are essential for many of its other industries, you know, like the energy industry, um, resource extraction in general, you know, computing, whatever it may be. And so there's also export controls going up to try and limit their access to these products. I think, uh, if I recall correctly, the Biden administration said we're essentially paying off 50% of their supply of like, high-end technological goods. Uh, which once again would presumably be a relatively large hit, especially over the long term to the Russian economy. Um, those are the two areas that come to mind immediately. Um, they have said that cutting off Russia from the SWIFT global payment system is still on the table. It is still an option. Um, and that would essentially hamper Russian, uh, Russia's ability to trade things like oil and resources on global markets in other countries. Um, there are, however, major downsides to that, which is why we are pursuing that first. Uh, namely, that it would, it would greatly impact our European partners and allies. Um, same things that would specifically target Russian energy, right? Um, because in that case, Europe would be taking almost as big of a hit as Russia would um, by by limiting, you know, cutting off their number one supplier for energy and heat. Um, and so, we're trying to be careful, flexible in the sanctions that we apply. The U.S. government being weak um, and that's um that could change though. Like there are other things they, they've been pretty clear that like they could be even more severe than they already are, and that they're holding back in a sense. And they have said um that Americans are gonna feel the cost of defending democracy abroad, right? And that's kind of as a libertarian background, especially and I hate I hate hearing about you know having to pay price on democracy abroad. It just shivers down my spine or in Washington speech about specifically not going abroad to like slave monsters or bears included in, in monsters, right? Um, oh, the, the funny thing, um, well, I, I just kind of did like a weird two-hour live stream earlier where I was just like reading antiwar.com and on Twitter. Uh, and I mentioned this, that Jim Saki essentially said there's a price to pay when you're fighting for freedom. And it, it is funny to hear freedom, you know, in, in their mouths when like everything is happening here with, with uh, just the past two years lockdowns and, and what they've advocated for when it comes to like Trudeau, Trudeau. 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 Trude
staying up against authoritarianism while at the same time, you know, shutting down all the, the freedom convoys there and yeah. uh, pulling people from their churches and whatnot over the past few years. Impressive term. It's tone deaf on Trudeau's part. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's kind of even funnier and stereotypical that the way specifically they believe America is being attacked is in, that's not the gas pump. They think gas prices are going to continue to skyrocket and rise. And so that's where they're also taking efforts, talking to major oil producers and suppliers um, and distributors, trying to make sure they can, if need be, offset the They do have to kind of cut Russia off more severely in that realm. Um, but there's also um, theorizing going on that gas prices are going to be rising regardless, and that this is kind of passing the blame to something. Um, kind of correlation to that causation situation, yeah. kind of pretend there's causation. Um, I think there's, there's probably a kernel truth to both. You know, gas prices have been rising. It's, it's not unexpected. Uh, inflation's hitting hard. All these things could be made worse, of course, by uh, active armed conflict, especially if the UN gets, uh, U.S. gets pulled in deeper. And, and and I really worry. I kind of joke about this with you, but I am serious. Uh, when you see Russian strikes so close to the Polish border, for example, there in Western Ukraine, it takes one private uh, access to artillery who's bad at math to accidentally shell NATO territory, right? right. Somebody that he doesn't understand the dial right, poorly trained, and all of a sudden, like, you know, a mortar goes somewhere it's not supposed to. Um, well, and that's that's always concerning as a NATO ally, because we've also been very, very clear that we will rush to the aid of any NATO ally that's attacked. And that's that's where you get the real uh, snowball effect on And I, I mean, that was, I mean, a lot of people really are, I, I've, I've heard some people have reached out to me just saying, like, well, you know, uh, we should, I mean, just like the, in the period right before what has recently happened with like the United States, like they're, they're saying that we um, we should defend Ukraine and, and all of their different prescriptions for how we should handle this. But like the fact that we're even this close is my my complaint. Like the fact that we, we've been applying this much pressure since the 90s, right? Like like since we have, ex- probably before then, but like since we have been expanding NATO, um, like mistakes are so possible, especially when, when you're when you're dealing with with soldiers um, close to borders like this. And I mean, like like I was reading some some Michael Tracy tweets earlier. Um, I think actually it was uh, Kyle Flinsky, and he's like, I don't think people realize just how close we could be pulled into like a real war right now, like uh, boots on the ground, and being that Russia has more nukes than the United States. Like the fact that we're even this close is what makes me piss off. So yeah, it's definitely it's, it's uncomfortable being on the brink. And I think that's why this issue is getting so much attention is because we haven't we haven't been in that potential, you know, like close to doomsday scenario in, in quite some time now. And this is, you know, there's been military action around the world, largely involving the US military to be fair. Um, but a, a conflict on the European continent between powers like Russia and, and Ukraine and NATO, um, that's that's something that we really haven't seen as, as possible for some time. And whether that be because of naivety or, um, you know, just putting their heads in the sand, um, I'm not sure, but uh, it's definitely boiled to the surface. Uh, yeah, so I think, so my second question I was going to ask earlier, it relates, and it's kind of as to where we're going from here, like geopolitically and, and individually and such. And so you talked earlier about the conflicting promises. You know, there's the, the promise of Ukraine that when they disarm uh, the nuclear arsenal, you know, they are then granted protection, um, you know, in order to protect themselves. They don't have that, and, and as well as the agreements with 
um, Russia that the, I believe it was like past Germany, is that like NATO wasn't going to expand past that. Just get into, into the post Soviet sphere. So, okay, yeah. So, this is, so then we have those conflicting promises. And so the first part of my question is what, um, what form are those in the, in the form of, of treaties or those in the form of, you know, just gentlemen's agreements, you know, handshakes, or is it like, do we have actual, you know, quote unquote, like obligations, you know, should this action, you talk about, you know, if a stray missile goes into Poland, then boom, that, you know, triggers a whole bunch of NATO actions and such. Are there, are we, you know, and I don't know how, how much the U.S. will keep to their word in, you know, any scenario, but are there specific, you know, obligations either in a, a certain act or just how it's formulated? How how yeah. those responses being triggered and what path might we take? So I, I believe it's um, Article Five. It's an Article Five commitment, um, part of NATO membership commitment, which says um, an attack on one ally is an attack on all allies. Yeah. Right. So that's really the core principle of the, the NATO defensive alliance. If anyone's attacked, you're essentially attacking a much much larger foe than there otherwise would have been as atomized independent defending states. Right. Um, and as to like where we're going from here and how the how the agreements work, um, Finland, for example, borders Russia is not a member of NATO. Finland has also said it doesn't particularly have uh, like immediate aspirations to join NATO. It's relatively um, self-sufficient in its defense, as I understand, it has one of the larger, um, better trained defense um, compared to, to a lot of other European nations. Um, and so Russia, despite bordering it, and despite Finland also having previously been Russian territory in history, um, you don't see the same sort of tension that's going, going on here as between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, whereas Ukraine has explicitly expressed uh, much more intent to get under the NATO umbrella sphere, especially since they've had more Western friendly governments in power here. And so um, uh, one of the things about NATO is you can't join if you're in that conflict, right? So in 2014, part of the thinking was perhaps Russia's doing this to, to keep Ukraine bogged down and even a minor conflict, purely still on paper, is not going to right? Um, and certainly right now, if they couldn't join NATO, I mean, why would NATO um, ally with the country actively under attack? You're just essentially declaring war on whoever is attacking the country, right? Um, and that's a, that's a big, big, bold decision that. Necessarily, wouldn't necessarily want to take. Um, and this might be a good segue into uh, like the world order like Where are we going from here? How is the world order going to change? How are things going to be impacted? Uh, I do want to almost go total opposite direction way back and why Russia and Ukraine are so closely tied historically. Like why, why is it that on one side you have Russia essentially saying, um, Ukraine used to be part of us and still should be in many senses in many areas part of us. And why Ukraine is so firm about having its own independent, distinct national identity. Um, because we just started this, especially as a younger person, um, you weren't even around for the Ukrainian SSR, right? Where you know you were just a Soviet, not necessarily a Russian Ukraine. There wasn't as big of a difference, I think, in common mind as there has been in the post-Soviet sphere. Uh, so Ukraine, I think in a black humor sense. Uh, its, its name means borderlands, essentially. Yeah. Ukraine, like Ukraine is like an area, and U in this case is prefix essentially denoting like on the actual style of Ukraine. And so there's conflicts in the borderlands, right? And, and the reasons of borderlands is right there between Russia proper, 
Russia really being uh, Eurasian as a country uh, versus Ukraine is, is pretty distinctly there on the European continent. It's the bridge there on the Black Sea, um, which which links them to the Western world. Uh, Ukraine also then has much more influence from other European um, powers and cultures, right? So their language is the same. Um, Ukrainian is its own Islamic language, as is Belarusian, right? And it has more influence from Polish, you know, from German, from uh, Belarusian, of it, maybe just closer to a geographic culture. So I've been closer contact with people in that area of what was just broadly the Russian Empire. Now, deep, deep historically, uh, the Rus, the Kievan Rus, were founded in Kiev as the name of the name. So the the Russian people, the Russian culture at its very birth in Genesis was actually founded there on what is now modern day geographic brain. Um, and so there's historical significance then for Russian people. You know, Russia as the seeming successor state to the Rus um, would love to symbolically have that location back. Now Ukraine might find out what's the first word get in Rus is Gavin and Yev is Ukraine, right? Um, and so there's there are interesting dynamics that are very, very, very old. Uh, Ukraine has had several foundings um, in the past couple centuries as an independent political entity uh, with various borders. Um, uh, once again, bits were added on to Ukraine like as a formal entity during the Soviet sphere. Um, you know, some of the peripheral regions there, like Crimea, was, was kind of given as a gift of sorts to the Ukrainian people. Um, and stuff where you see where it's kind of messy to have, even nowadays, this, this political entity, this sovereign state, which has conflict and um, interaction engagement with two very different spheres. It is the borderlands. And so it's only kind of correct symbolically that in this great shift, this great um, re-collision between the, the Atlantic West and kind of the Eurasian East, um, the fact that it's it's sparking here in Ukraine in the borderlands, um, where very fertile land and sea, uh, very fertile land meets you know the sea there. Um, it's it's symbolically beautiful and tragic. So uh, I feel it's important to note kind of very quickly that deeper historical relationship between Russia and Ukraine, unless people be either under the impression that they are one and the same or entirely distinct, because there is just um, undoubtedly uh, entangle and meshing the two culturally historically. I'm going to let the connection, yeah, it just lagged for a little bit, but um, before we get into kind of the world order kind of stuff with with the United States being this unipolar power, um, I think I just want to bring up kind of like uh, Ukraine's response again. I know that they are saying that um, this implicates all of Europe. This is an attack against all of Europe. So the argument almost seems to be that, like, I'm not in NATO, but I'm implicitly in NATO. So what do you make of this? And do you think, do you expect um, Western countries other than the United States to respond? Because um, I, I think sometimes even with the chance for that, like, the United States is the only person that can that can get involved here. Um, you, the UK might do something, I, I, and I have no idea, so I wonder, I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, I, um, well, this is where it's, I think, uh, important to zoom out just from NATO and how NATO is involved, to how this is a larger kind of cultural civilizational clash going on. 
so I'm trying to think about a good way to kind of kind of frame this without kind of getting to that ahead of the question. Um, but you can see you can see the West outside of NATO, right? You get to these countries, um, like we talked about Finland, where they're pretty clearly culturally and civilizationally part of this more Western Atlantic sphere, um, but they're not formally part of NATO, right? Well, they're still um, condemning the attacks in their government, right? Um, we see countries across South America and Africa, Boston Security Council, who are likewise condemning Russia's actions in Ukraine. So you see beyond just NATO proper into the, the larger Western Atlantic sphere is, is condemning and coming together um, to take response. So wherever people can, they kind of are. So, you know, the UK and, and the EU and all these Western countries are doing their own sanctions. You know, it's a coordinated sanction package, not just by the US, but by the US and all of these other countries as well. Um, Japan, even as I recall seeing, um, launched their own like, restrictions on, on Russia, their own sanctions in a sense. Um, so that shows that it goes beyond NATO and it's, it's really a broader civilizational clash taking place or broader tensions in the geopolitical world are, are coming into light and, and having to be addressed kind of because they're in our faces now. And they could have been addressed. There have been people who wanted them to be addressed for some time. That's where we look at people um, like Ron Paul, where he's, he's talked extensively about potential blowbacks of U.S. global policing, of an expansionist U.S. foreign policy, of a U.S. Who believes it's its its duty, its right, and its uh, responsibility to protect democracy around the globe, right? It's there are people who have criticized these ideas and they face criticism themselves. You know, Ron Paul was told that he sided with terrorists when he um, just pointed out that part of the, the hatred in the Middle Eastern world for the US was a result of blowback from our military operations and our, our diplomatic policies in that region of the world. And I don't think it should be any different now. You know, we can condemn, you know, a, a military operation that results in the death of, you know, soldiers and civilians alike, uh, while also recognizing that it's not just advocacy. There are legitimate reasons that a conflict has come to light. And we would be, um, we would just look very bad not to take it as a moment of self-reflection. Right? That's where I, I said on our last podcast, I don't feel so we should be beholden to the promises of neoconservative decades ago. We have a responsibility as younger people to, to rethink what America may look like as a player on the world stage. You know, the role that alliances like NATO might play, whether we are as a country willing to define ourselves as this protector of freedom, because that would be a shift from our founding mythos of we are the North American continent, we will remain here in our distinct Western new world sphere of influence and not involve ourselves with the affairs of, of Europe and, and the rest of the world. Um, so we would be departing from our, our founding myth as one of the core principles of our country, and we've been departing from that foreign policy for decades. I don't want to make it sound as like brand new, but it, it would be a very final definite moment of, um, I think, are we going to go and stand up to challenges to the current world order and maintain our unipolar hegemony, the Pax Americana, as long as we can. We want a thousand year Pax Americana, or are we willing to give up the seeming benefits and detriments of being the unipolar global superpower, except that the end of history didn't come and figure out where we fit in a more multi-polar
sustainably in the long term by recognizing that maybe the Atlantic enlightened democratic values aren't for everyone. Aristotle had a great point that you don't match, you don't try and shoehorn people into a politics. You have to make a politics match the people. And culturally, anthropologically, historically, politically, people across the world are different. Not everyone is suited to be in, in the same the same place, the same structure, the same system at the same time. Uh, it would be a great shame to lose the great diversity on this planet of all sorts and all senses to try and, and have um, a homogenized global system. Yeah, there was this moment um, that happened right after the withdrawal from Afghanistan where the conservative movement recognized and had to reflect in hindsight, uh, or they, they, they reflected on the Ron Paul campaign and, and people were finally admitting that he was right. And, and Ron Paul was training for like two days. On um, and obviously it took how long for them to finally, because um, his first uh, real moment where he was kind of talking about blowback, I, I believe that was in the 2012 debate. I'm not sure if someone will probably get mad at me for getting that wrong. But, I'm sure um, you talked about it on the House floor at some point. So that's what yeah. But it, um, either way, so that, that happened. It, it took a long time for, for that one, the Giuliani moment when they, they finally, um, when they were attacking him. Uh, Giuliani said he was crazy, that he had to uh, withdraw his statement, and um, everyone attacked him as being this crazy guy. And now there are some real threats in the Republican Party right now. Um, Represented by like people like Matt Walsh, um, Candace Owens are uh, kind of arguing these non-interventionist policies, and and Tucker Carlson has you know five million uh, viewers a night. And what's interesting is is um, on this Russia issue, it's it's very similar in that like Ron Paul was getting criticized for for making these remarks about these wars that were going on and, and America still really cared about and thought that we need to um, fight. Now you have people like Tulsi Gabbard last night saying that um, that we should have backed NATO and, and instantly within like an hour there were like 80,000 people tweeting about her being a Russian tra- or a traitor and a Russian asset. I was accused by some people I thought um, I was pretty friendly with on, on Facebook um, and, and they blocked me. They said that I worked for Russia, um, sorry, for the Russian government, um, which is it's just crazy to see that, that propaganda start to infect and kind of like um, possess uh, family mem- members and, and friends. And I mean, we saw it with COVID. Um, but I, I do think that like things are going to be different and, and for the next like, who knows how long people really are going to change tone towards Russia. I, I went out, or my, the student group that I run um, went out on campus and they were asking students what they thought about uh, going to war with Russia. Most of them were opposed to it, but I don't know if that would be the case anymore. If, if we went out today, I think the, the tone would change. Maybe people would be a little less likely to comment. They might walk by because they don't want to like stand out or something like that, give their opinion. So it, it is. I don't know, weird times, and uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't really know what to make uh, of it right now and, and what's going to happen. Um, do, you, do you see it falling into something? Do you see it becoming something 
greater? Or, or do you think that uh, really there will be like a compromise here or, or something? I, something greater, I mean, I would, I would say there are a plethora of potential consequences that aren't significant. Uh, some of which I would say would be uh, progress for the better. Some of which I would say would be obviously greatly detrimental as well. Kind of uh, best case, worst case. Um, in the very best case scenario, um, we take this moment of self-reflection. We make a sincere effort, and hopefully Russia would as well make a sincere effort to sit down at the table and throw away all of the last several decades, the last century. Of respecting foreign policies and, and geopolitical structures and the best tax alliances, and really set, sit down and say, we, if we restart this whole thing, we got kind of got to start and rebuild our respective structures and our relationship from scratch. What would that be? And I think, of course, there would be other visions, but I think we find, I think it would take on our part a great humility to step down. From that position as the leading student, one of one on the world stage, the one and only USA of freedom and democracy um, across the globe. And on the Russian side as well, they would have to um, also humble themselves and recognize that they are now working in a, a uh, globally communicative society um, for which their consequences have a great crippling impact. Regardless of whether or not that they like that way, um, regardless of whether or not they intend for that way, and so both nations, both peoples, governments can really sit down and and reflect with humility on how they can restructure relationships and stuff. That would be absolute best case. Now that's incredibly optimistic, wishful thinking as well, because people are set in place, you know, um, especially because we. The Russia, uh, Russia and the U.S. are both somewhat gerontocracies. Uh, you know, they're run by older people who were brought up in the Cold War bipolar world mindset, where they they have an agenda, they have a, a block that they have to not only maintain but expand that power. Um, and the the transition to a multipolar world order, to use this buzzword again, would just require great humility on behalf of of governments, and that's a lot to ask for. Well, um, worst case scenario, things escalate. We can yeah, see an invasion of a NATO country or accident committing of a NATO country. We can see uh, Biden must go back on their words about not engaging in Ukraine. Um, and we can see this escalate into into full blown nuclear war. And so, again, I, as, as wishful and optimistic as the, the first half was, that's also incredibly doomsday pessimistic. Um, nuclear war is largely taking day. So I wouldn't worry about it too much, but I, I understand the looming threat and that people be able to see, you know, pictures of mushroom clouds and the like. Right. Well, I, I heard that last night there were again it was kind of like this moment where no one knew what was happening, but uh, there were reports for strikes in Moldova. I was like, oh no, because <laughs> at that point I'm like, what are they doing? Are, are they pushing up against NATO? Like, because you're yeah, trying to know. Yeah, because I mean. It, the goal of all of this is, is to get to that perfect solution that you talked about that, that involves you know, U.S. humility, it involves in like you know, a degree of like the Russian government's humility and like being able to like put aside the fact that they feel they've been wronged by this, this, and that. And so, what I'm really curious about is, and, and I'm uh, 
presuming that you have more experience with like the Russian people and the Russian culture and this and that. So in the U.S., there's very much a a and I'm speaking very generally, but very much a, a birthright mentality of you know the number one superpower. That's not just a government thing that boils down all the way to you know being a kid and you know you know I grew up in the military and so you very much you know the the pride of saluting to the flag, you know, standing for, for colors and taps and stuff, and to play on, on military bases, and you know, the idea that like almost the duty that you were talking about to be the world's police and to be the, the shining city on a hill, but not only the shining city on the hill, the shining city on the hill that goes and build shining cities on every other hill across the whole you know world, and you know, to provide an example of all that in different cultures, and you know, kind of there's an idea, a weird idea of like blending you know multiculturalism as well as you know integration. By spreading our values, integrating our values into other people's culture, as opposed to like having them do that. But that's a very, I feel like the, the mainstream and you call it moderate centrist citizens of the US are very tied into that in the government. It's almost like a direct pipeline between, you know, heartland America, you know, patriotism, you know, almost a blind patriotism and like government action, like support, right? everything, support, every support. You know, that, you know, that it's not nowadays there's you know less of you know that anti-american you know anti like vietnam war sentiment that you had kind of in the, in the mid um, 20th century and it's very much into like a support our troops and if you don't support this war like you're you know great you know, and that's just the mainstream view so i'm very curious um if you if you have any insight into how the russian citizens themselves view their government and if they have that same kind of because i feel like there's the Russian government, if you listen to what, what Putin explicitly said, I mean, you can't really, like you said, speculate too much on the way he takes words at big value. Like, they feel like they've been stilted and, and wronged through various levels by the Western world. Do the Russian people share the same kind of sentiment on the whole? It, it really varies, once again, as much as the, the American people differ and, um, uh, you know, diverge from the American government, so too the Russian people very often differ from, from their government. Yeah, and agree with it as well. It's it's uh, broad sectors of society are very anti-Kremlin. Um, we have seen since the uh, military operations in Ukraine um, relatively large-scale protests in major Russian cities against um, Putin and against the military operations there. Um, those are largely young people, um, uh, young people who are educated, like the intelligentsia class, you know, the university. Um, they're more familiar with the Western world. Again, it's in bigger cities that also have that more cosmopolitan influence, St. Petersburg, Moscow. Um, and Russian police have been, in certain cases, um, cracking down on those protests. There's been about 2,000 lots of, lots of arrests before. Um, and so that goes to show that they are relatively large-scale protests as well. Um, and certainly not the first of their kind. Um, Russians fairly frequently go out in, in mass protests and get mass arrested as well, um, fairly frequently. Um, that being said, there is obviously a fair amount of support for, for Putin. Um, he has a strong and relatively stable base. Um, and we did a deeper dive on the last podcast. But if you can understand how awful and unstable and uncertain the 1990s were for Russians um, and the seeming stability and reigning into control and relative prosperity of uh, what Putin has at times brought to the Russian people, you can understand. Where the uh, where the sympathy and support for him comes among Russians, it really is in contrast to what was before Putin, the chaos of the Yeltsin years and the 1990s oligarchy thing and Russia. Um, 
So once again, just like there are Americans here who are very vehemently pro-war and those who are very, very vehemently anti-war, um, there's also the same case today in Russia. Um, one interesting thing to note, though, on, on the Russia-U.S. relationship in terms of our people more than our governments is I think something even, even other scholars on this really overlook is the, the, the remarkable similarities between the Russian and the American story real and, and the Russian and American people, right? So we are broadly multicultural uh, empires, right? So Russia spans from one ocean to the other ocean, right? From Atlantic to Pacific in a very similar way to us. Um, they move from one side to the other. Um, in a series of great explorations by notable Russian explorers into the wilderness and their versions of Lewis and Clark. They interact with indigenous people, you know, uh, uh, if I'm not totally out of date anthropologically, you know, that the Native Americans of North America are very, very genetically closely related to the Native peoples of Siberia, of, of the Eastern part of Russia. And so they also have, you know, their tribal cultures, their tribal identities, which are kept and maintained there in semi-autonomous regions throughout um, Siberia and some of their northern provinces. So we're coast to coast multi-ethnic empires that kind of expanded from one side to the other and integrated a wide variety of cultures as well. You know, in the Soviet era, you know, they had integration of the Baltic cultures, those other, you know, Belar uh, Belarusian, Ukrainian culture. Uh, Central Asia continues to this day to weaken prominent uh, in Sudan and Russia. Um, the lots of workers, uh, people are immigrating from former Soviet Central Asian states like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan to Russia proper for work. So you see where, like us, they're also somewhat of a melting pot. Uh, even though it might not seem like it on the, on the surface, they are a remarkably diverse country. That are also a federation like us. They're organized in a very similar way where they have um, you know, regional level and local level governments which report to a higher level federal government with much broader uh, authorities and oversight. Um, their constitution is partly modeled after ours. Um, it's much, much, much longer and more complicated and more convoluted than ours. It really gives an appreciation for the American Constitution. Um, and this, this will get us back to you know, the civilizational world stage talk. People very firmly lump America in with the sea power sphere, the Atlantic sphere. And sea power sphere is very much associated with things like trade, commerce, uh, enlightenment values, things that were kind of born out of, you know, British, Dutch, American um, enlightenment and industrial age culture from modernity as we know it in the West. Um, and then land power cultures are more focused on, on the honors, virtues, um, often more militant, more like um, a greater emphasis on, you know, um, what we might call like social conservative traditional values. And so the U.S. has traditionally been placed more in the sea power in Atlantic sphere, and that's where we ended up now alongside our Western European allies. But I think what we've shown, especially through American expansion as well, is we have a strong heartland culture as well. I think we're not explicitly a sea culture, and I think one thing that shows that is that the American coasts are very, very different from the American interior, right, uh, politically, culturally. And I think it's reflected in the values of those people as well. I, I, I'm only speculating here, but I guess if you hold people on the coast versus middle America on what they support going and uh, engaging militarily in Ukraine, I would reckon that people on the coast would be far more, not far more, but statistically uh, more in favor of intervention than those in the heartland. And that has not always been the case, right? Because the American military is a volunteer military. Uh, the Russian military 
is largely conscripts, right? Um, young men, if you don't go to college or you don't have a medical exemption, you have to serve your mandatory military service duty and then you go on reserve. So as a result, Russia similarly now in this situation, they banned um, military age men from leaving the country. They're organizing their own kind of emergency conscription defense programs going on. But the US being volunteer military has to have the public support behind the war cause in order to have an effective military. You cannot wage effective war without immense costs and hurdles to get over if the soldiers aren't behind the cost, right? And um, with a lot of what we know about the demographics and military um, populations leanings politically, especially along the young infantry combat males, their support for the Biden administration in general and their support for this war, I think would be it's a low and be a hurdle to get over the US military for sure. Um, especially with the morale problems already relatively low with vaccine mandates and the like. Um, I would be I would be hesitant to think our military is at its full 100 um, percent readiness might. Um, and that that is concerning should things escalate the full blown conflict. So going going back to the, the people though, I think there's a very interesting comment Today, I think probably marks a very interesting event in history, and not for the actions, but of the ability for people to interact with those on the other side. Today, I interacted on Twitter in the span of 15 minutes with you know individuals from the U.S., individuals from the U.S. military, individuals from the Ukraine military, citizens of Ukraine, citizens of Russia. All of that, like when the public forums that exist because of social media and that widespread internet connection worldwide, or more worldwide than it has been in the past years, I think that's a very, very interesting thing. And I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, and I don't really know how that might change public perception because there's, there's kind of like a, in, on a small scale, or not a small scale, on a large scale, but of a small degree. Uh, homogenization of the world and the, and the values and like those differences we talked about, the differences of cultures and this is that now the fact that I'm on Twitter sharing memes with, you know, people living in St. Petersburg. Like that that changes a lot. And you know, our, our values may still have their differences in our you know cultural practices may have differences, but the very fact that, you know, during the Cold War, the likelihood that any American individual would have any contact with any Russian individual was minuscule love, so much so they you know were even suspected of having contact, you know, you were court martialed or you were brought in for interrogation, this like that that much so. And then now I've spoken with the court enemy throughout the whole day today. And I think that's this liberation phenomenon that kind of came on. Yeah, I, I was having this exact conversation with some earlier about how interesting this this hyper online engagement before right? Because we've had once again military conflicts in the Century where people can live stream things, post on Twitter, post on TikTok, whatever. But I mean, right now it's it's definitely low. It's only gone up since the last conflict. And so to have this level of seeming engagement 24 7 at our fingertips with uh, a war on the other side of the world is something um, I don't think human individuals have sort of built for. I'm not sure psychologically, sociologically, we're prepared and evolved to be caring that much about conflicts so remote and abstract to us in a concrete sense that I do think that's 
part of why it's like been such a weird engagement public forum discussion. And also going back to humility, informational humility right now is so much more important than ever before. Because even though we can see missile strikes and artillery barrages and you know, troops marching down the streets and tanks rolling around in fields, um, and, and believe like we're right there in the forefront, we know really nothing about those videos. I mean, a verifying documentation so is, is beyond what the average person is going to do for every single look at, right? And we the video, right? Like we, video, we literally yeah. people sharing videos of armor, like military yeah. simulation video games. And granted, I see why you could be fooled if you weren't actually out for it. But that's where really it, in a sense, and this is just painful to say if someone who likes to stay as engaged as possible. If you're not feeling the shaking of the ground from that rocket strike, you don't know traction about what's happening. You didn't see you know, the Russian flag on the side of the jet that launched a rocket into a building, like with your own two eyes, like in the era of video meditation, especially in the era of people recycling old videos of social media or just straight up editing them. That's our World War II reenactment. Yeah, yeah, they posted today and reported to be, you know, on, on the ground in Ukraine. Yeah, and it takes, it takes not only ability to recognize what we want to believe you guys saying, I'm saying, I'm sorry, I shared some wrong videos. Misattributed, mislabeled. Um, but at the same time, you also have to almost be preventative, not just reactive, and be humble in every single piece of information that you come across, right? As much as the West loves to talk about, oh, everything that you see um, out there that's not us is Russian propaganda, right? But, like, inversely, granted that that's true to a certain extent, but they're engaged in the same exact media games. Um, you know, the BBC versus RT putting out stories there. Very, very, very similar entities at the end of the day, but with two different foundational meta narratives at the core, two worldviews um, informing them differently in how they're presenting and, and dealing and processing with the information that they're giving. Right. So I implore everyone out there, even with this podcast, you know, and I'm not saying fact check every single thing, but particularly with photos and videos of war in the region. Um, just realize that you are not as connected as you think, right? We, we have a certain arrogance of the informational age, and we need humility more than anything in such a, a hyper-connected, virtual, digitized world. Yeah, uh, someone's asking some epistemology questions right now. I like it. Indeed. Even if you can, even if you feel it, if you feel the ground shaking, do you know? <laughs> can you know? <laughs> this, is, this is all, you know, you can trust your sense of all else, and you can't even trust the sense, right? And uh, really, you know, I know that you kind of have to admit that question, um, but that is that is really getting at the, the crux of the issue here, which is you have to be willing to be skeptical of most things, despite feeling so empowered and special by having unprecedented informational access um, through the internet and through social media. Yeah, it's, it's funny just to, to kind of take a different angle from what you um what you kind of noted right there is the way that the Ukrainian Twitter account responded to everything last night, uh, like posting memes. Like I, I think I think that demonstrates exactly what you're talking about. Like humans are not built for this. Like it's so weird. We don't know what we're doing. We're stumbling and finding our way into this. Yeah, like it, it really does feel like a simulation or something that, or, or like we're we're literally just apes trying to figure out what we're doing. It, yeah. It's really that level. Um, but before we continue, and if you have any more questions, I, I kind of wanted to go through some of the comments because we got quite a bit. And we just had to answer. <laughs> we do. 
uh, can kind of be a little break. Uh, so someone was asking, was Biden threatened to launch a cyber attack? Um, good question. Um, so part of what is believed to be the standard Russian military operations playbook involves a wide range of cyber operations and attacks against the enemy. So in this case, um, I don't think they formally attributed to the Russians, um, but it is largely suspected that recent um, uh, disruptions of Ukrainian government websites, for example, are due to Russian activity. Um, it would be in line with what U.S. and other intelligence expects from a Russian military operation. And the Biden administration has made clear through several spokespeople that um, if the U.S., U.S. critical infrastructure, U.S. businesses, uh, U.S. government is targeted by Russian cyber attacks, that the U.S. will take appropriate retaliatory measures. Now, they have been very opaque about what that means, whether that means we're going to nuke you because you cyber attack us or whether we're going to try and you know, cyber attack you back. You know, um, that's where this is a relatively unexplored area of um, impeachment between uh, the U.S. and a near-peer competitor where, you know, we clearly could out-cyber, you know, the Taliban. Uh, it's much harder to out-cyber Russia. So, um, I don't know the specifics because I haven't shared them, but the Biden administration has threatened to retaliate to any potential cyber attack. Um, I wouldn't put it past them to just do it outright, you know, preemptively, but if we take them out their word, it would only be retaliatory. Um, Someone else saying Putin and G are being tricked into providing their own breach of security as a shoot. Um, same person said Ukraine was only a regional distinction, not a country. And, and what that's what I was getting at in the Soviet era, it was a, a part of the, the Ukrainian SSR. Uh, it was a part of the Russian Empire. Uh, and so it's, it's been known as its own region and area, right? It's the borderlands region, uh, Ukraine, but it's um, yeah, it's it's still relatively distinct. It's, it's like there's a reason we're able to point to a Ukraine, even if there's uh, disagreements about exactly where those borders are and exactly what it means. Like there there is something there historically, culturally that's not Russia, Russia as we. All right, and uh, this guy's also asking, wasn't Kiev the crown jewel of Catherine the Great's empire? Uh, so the the kind of seat of power of Russia uh, has, has changed several times. So you have the Yemen groups that I talked about at the beginning. I don't know how far That's like um, 988, I want to say, is when Vladimir the Green like, Christianized and baptized the Russian people and kind of symbolically started like the Rus as like the empire we know now. And there was, you know, Slavic free Rus pagans and everything in the region. And we end up the Varangians, which are like Vikings, which came and Took governance over those Slavic people in those areas. Um, but to get to the chase, you know, it moves from Gidon uh, Rus. You had Novgorod was very um, prominent for some time. That's another older Russian city. Um, eventually, uh, things kind of settled around Moscow, um, largely during the um, Mongol Tatar yoke, which was like that kind of Mongol influenced Golden Horde era of uh, Russian history, where kind of these regional warlord feudal lords were vassals of a, you know, it was, it was a complicated mess, but um, eventually then you get the Russian Empire proper, and under Peter the Great, um, they construct St. Petersburg using Swedish slave labor from the, the Northern War there. Uh, so you know, St. Petersburg is like built on a swamp. It's an enlightenment city, so it's like on a grid fitted to the 
not particularly hospitable landscape right there on the Baltic. Um, and so the map became the, the capital for some time. And then under the Soviet era, it moved back to Moscow. They renamed St. Petersburg to Leningrad. Um, and then after the fall of the Soviet Union, the seat of power remained there in Moscow at the Kremlin. So we say the Kremlin, right? And I just want to get this out there. Um, there are multiple Kremlins. Kremlin just means fortress, essentially. And so many cities in Russia and Eastern Europe have you know, Kremlins, but like the Kremlin is the one in Moscow. I wanted to make that distinction for those who might come across a Kremlin in another city and be confused. Um, so now this guy's getting to the serious questions, Ethan. Uh, he's wondering if gingers have souls. Um, it's, it's been hotly debated. It's hotly debated as this issue. Um, I would say, I would say yes. In fact, I would say we've had you know, more of a soul. It's hard to end, but a spirit bears. If you didn't know what those like spirit bears, they're not albino. They actually just have the same red hair gene as possible red hairs in humans. Um, you have your coat that you don't have any Neanderthal genetics because that's like that's a thing that I think people theorize that you know red hairs mean do have any Neanderthal genetics. And if you're just like salty that you don't have it, um, I'm sorry, I don't know what to tell you, but. <laughs> um, the other thing is, uh, yeah, what is this guy talking about? Russia only started existing in my mind when Putin put bounties on Americans' heads in Syria, which is now that's hilarious, right? Like, um, and I think it was I thought it was Afghanistan, not Syria, but they don't talk about Syria as much. Um, that narrative has not been talked about really at all because it was disproven that that Russia was putting bounties on Americans' heads in Afghanistan. Well, Russia has their own, right, the Soviet Union, rather, has their own extensive history with Afghanistan. You know, as I'm sure many people watching know, they were uh, the first, not the first, but in recent times there in the 20th century, uh, launched their own invasion of uh, Afghanistan. Weren't particularly successful due to uh, Western backed uh, Mujahideen fighters, um, thanks Osama. Um, and, and a lot of great Soviet culture came out of that. Um, you have uh, like Kimol, which is a great Russian band, they were kind of writing uh, themes that emerged from that Soviet Afghan war. Um, lots of great movies, like uh, uh, what is it like? Uh, Cargo 200 is a good movie that's like about this link to Afghan Soviet war themes. Um, anyway, just to note that the, the Russians, uh, Soviets, have their own history in Afghanistan, and Russia, as the Russian Federation, post Soviet has had relatively extensive involvement in the Middle East as well. Um, they've, of course, backed the Assad regime. They're certainly closer to Iran than the U.S. and the West is. Um, they tend to not always, by default, take an opposite stance. Um, whatever the U.S. is, we share allies. We're both relatively firm allies with Israel, if I'm not mistaken. Russian behind English and Hebrew is like the most common language in Israel. I could, it might even be higher, I could be wrong about that, but Russian is like, there's a very prominent Russian diaspora community in Israel. Um, that's largely because there's um, lots of Eastern European, Soviet, Russian Empire um, Jews from the Pale of Settlement. That's something related to Catholic, great Catholic. Now, modern day Belarus, Ukraine, um, as a place in the Russian Empire to settle the vast majority of the Jewish population. They had the large Jewish population in the world um, prior to uh, certain events. And uh, 
then a lot moved uh, both during the Soviet days and sent to Israel. Um, so we share that as an ally. Um, but we also find ourselves clashing with Russia and Africa, just as China, through their Belt and Road Initiative, has tried to get um, uh, you know, their foot in the door in Africa and South America. Russia hasn't seen that focus uh, as China, but they certainly continue to try and exert influence where they can. Um, with Venezuela, they tend to back Venezuela, especially when it's spatting to the U.S., as mentioned by Iran and Syria. Um, recently, they kind of got into it with France oversending like, Russian uh, forces into Mali in Africa, which is traditionally like French uh, forces responsible for security operations, counterterrorism there. Uh, so Russia certainly does have several areas where it, it does challenge uh, U.S. Western hegemony outside of the Eurasian continent, um, but I wouldn't say it's a particular problem. And on the Russian-China thing, quickly, well, maybe under the misconception that they're strong allies, they're definitely allies of convenience when it comes to countering the West and establishing themselves further as as regional and global powers. Um, but there's many areas of tension between uh, Russia and China as well. Uh, Chinese are increasingly settling parts of Eastern Russia. Which of course Russia doesn't necessarily like. Um, China has harder conditions, which Russia doesn't necessarily like because they'd like to kind of be the sole benefactor of hard expansion and development and trade routes like um, resource extraction. China wants to continue to advance in uh, its sphere of influence there in Central Asia, and that's historically in recent times, you know, Russian sphere of influence. And so there are definitely tensions in the dragon tail relationship, as they call it. So even though Russia, China, for example, on the Security Council is not so quick to condemn Russia and is much more sympathetic or at least neutral on this whole Ukraine situation, um, don't be fooled into thinking that they're steadfast allies. They're as much allies as Stalin and Hitler were prior to Barbarossa. Yeah, on, on the point about that, I'm just thinking it's like uh, our, our point of the Jihadi to, to fight the Soviet Union. Um, and I, I believe, and I, you might know a lot more about this than I do, that there's some connection with the Mujahideen in Russia's eyes as as it pertains to um, the Chechen terrorists that, that Putin, um, or at least like the Russian culture was kind of reacting to. Um, do, do you know anything about that? Uh, well, generally, this may not exactly answer your question, but Russia has a interesting relationship with the Islamic faith. Uh, compared to, I think, pretty much every other European country, it has a, um, a a significant Muslim minority population. I think it's like 20% of Russians at this point, and that's largely because of Central Asians of Muslim faith who immigrated to Russia, or any of those in the Caucasus as well, Caucasus being there, um, for those who may not know, between like Russia and Turkey, um, kind of where the south of Russia merges into the Middle East. Uh, and there's lots of uh, ethnic groups there who adopted the Muslim faith. Um, and so there are lots of mosques, especially in the Russian cities where these people are moving to. Um, and Putin has largely embraced you know, the Muslim faith, but that means population demographic reasons or otherwise. But like you said, there is an interesting relationship with Chechnya in particular, given the um, wars that Russia has had with Chechnya um, over. Um, both very, very confirmed and alleged acts of terrorism under the Beslan School massacre, uh, Moscow incident, um, apartment bombings in Moscow, um, 
And so there has been some animosity between Chechnyans who viewed themselves as um, pretty much unrightfully colonized by Russia as though they should have gotten independence after the fall of the Soviet Union as well. Um, but it's Chechnyans are distinct in that way. Um, you know, Grozny is a, a relatively big city. Uh, it was the, the site of extensive, extensive shelling and military operations there during the Chechen wars uh, when, when Russia was engaging in military operations there. And so many of the vets, kind of like we have our um, vets of like the early 2000s and stuff there from the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, lots of like the seasoned Russian soldiers in their military have action um, in Chechnya primarily because that, that Afghanistan, you know, if they were 20 in the 1980s, you know, that puts them well into their, you know, 50s, 60s, whatever, you know, they're, they're at the, the elder, elder age of the working force. And so um, those who would be engaged in combat operations presumably are likely more experienced if they are from operations in places like Chechnya. So some of the other comments, um, some just said war water courts and orthodox Christianity. Well, great talk. There's so many like sub points to, to touch on the target. Yeah. Diversity is our albatross. Yes, I saw from a tweet uh, last night. It was like breaking. Putin has yet to decide whether or not racism was involved or, or climate change is responsible for something. Yeah, I butchered it, but. Uh, I covered it in my live, live stream earlier, just a joke about like how uh, uh, Biden is going to declare war on food for climate change and racism and all this stuff. Um, said, no good reason not to monetize your streams. I just sent you a couple bucks. I don't think you can until you have a thousand subscribers on YouTube. Could be wrong about that. Um, and then he said, but no, I don't know what, what type of this guy did. Yes, fine. I think I lost one of my freckles. Sorry, you can call me a redhead, but I see here. I got like, like the dirty blonde hair. I got a red beard. I got black body hair. So I'm really, I'm the rainbow of human biodiversity. I think he was in the comments last time, too. Uh, and he said, 2014, we legalized propaganda from our own government. This is why Iran may die. And then the Constitution was fully written and tyrannical before they were forced to add the first and second. Dot, dot, dot. Um, then Monkey Prank said, even if you feel it and you know, we already got that one. And then he said, the humility seems to usher in over skepticism to the point where it can almost be paralyzing. To truly know something is left to systems of logic, math, or the accident. Yeah, and I understand. And, and that's actually a very, very good point to not get paralyzed, being overly skeptical of information. Like we have to try and ground ourselves in some reality, right? Like a human being would go crazy if we truly were, were so hyper-skeptical that we couldn't make a single solid thing about the world, right? That's, uh, you can kind of see where that line of philosophical reasoning comes from where we go there. But um, the point that I was really making is I would acknowledge you don't want to get to the point where you just disregard everything as disinformation or you know unclear. Um, but just to, especially on things that, that really deeply impact you or you think would inform your opinion, to, to just realize that, that just because you have access to information, unprecedented access, doesn't necessarily mean that that information is good, that it's properly presented, that you have context, that someone's not actively trying to dupe you. Because, um, 
people people aren't myself included as smart as we necessarily like to think. Um, people who truly are engaged in these noospherical informational ops, what I like to call it the public relations informational complex, the prick, um, when the prick is at work, they um, they know what they're doing. They're skilled in the manipulation of the noosphere and, and human cognition and consciousness. And when you plug yourself into the internet, hyper-connected noosphere of the 21st century, you you click the terms and services, and that's that you you're going to be manipulable, and it's your responsibility, not anyone else's, to try and sort it all out. And if you if you don't try, you're going to be duped. If you try way way too much, then yeah, it's you're going to be paralyzed, and that's arguably dangerous as well. This gets into what we were talking about in the last podcast, just towards the end about like the inauthentic like way that a lot of these narratives come about and, and how like i mean last night with pulsey gabbard and, and trader being uh trending it was just like where is this coming from like it, it just felt so like manufactured like it, where it, it felt like there was some manipulation because there's no way there's no way that this also just climbs to the charts of this algorithm it, it just didn't make any sense just this this inauthentic um fabrication of, of narratives it, it's it's easy for people to get possessed and caught up in that especially if you aren't aware that it's happening yeah um definitely just be be careful with the ideas um and information that you're you're playing with because even if you do like disregard it like there there are lingering subconscious impressions to consider as well um but again, I don't mean I don't mean to sound like so dismissive of social media and like proper media in general at times. I do just think, particularly with all of this war footage going around and all these, um, to just realize that maybe you're not you're not meant or equipped to know as much as you think you may be, given the amenity and luxury of of the internet and and this access to what's going on thousands and thousands of miles away. So another comment is also consider the fact that Ukraine had a voluntary separation during the dissolution of the USSR. They took a legitimate pathway to have sovereignty. Yeah, and so that's, I definitely brought that up in history that at the moment which the USR, USSR dissolved, which wasn't a singular moment, it was a series of these um, republics breaking away to form sovereign political bodies of their own, and Ukraine was included there. Um, where it got sticky was some of the guarantees and some of the um, assumptions that were seemingly agreed upon and now are conflicting between the two parties. Um, namely, like Ukraine has brought up now, like we, um, the West promised them a certain level of protection in exchange for giving up the status as a nuclear power. And now that they're seeing the consequences of that, we either have to kind of back up our promise or say that was empty, so that, that was never a promise. Um, that's, that's all that I'm saying. I'm not. I'm certainly not a person to disregard the existence of Ukraine to say that Ukraine was never its own political entity. Because very clearly it has been and is right now. The, the thing that I think a lot of uh, a lot of people are getting thrown into this for the first time, they, they leave with false impressions because they're only given the last couple of days, last couple of months worth of news on the US-Russia relationship, on the US, uh, the Ukraine-Russia history. And it's like this, this is an issue with immense complexity and uh, immense historical context that matters in understanding where we are now, where we can go, how we got here, right? And so um, 
I, I hate credentials, which I don't want to say like, you know, like people, people need to, to not engage on issues which not experts in. Like I love when people engage in anything. And as someone who's dedicated years to this topic, I love talking about people. But once again, you have to enter conversations. Like when I enter conversations on pretty much any specific area of the world geopolitically, like I have a foundational knowledge base, but I'm far from an expert and I'd be looking like a fool, I'd be unwise and doing myself a disservice by going in there pretending as though I have a full picture. I, I recognize where I have a surface level understanding. And it seems like lots of people, common commentators, um, people in the media, politicians, believe they have a much deeper understanding than they really do. And my understanding alone, you know, I'm I'm not a Russian, I'm not a Ukrainian, I'm someone who I it's kind of a funny story how I got here. It's, uh, in hindsight, I'm just really looking at circles back. In uh, 2014, at my high school here in Montana, we had an exchange student from Eastern Ukraine from an area that's now in, in Luhansk. It's like dead between where Luhansk and Donetsk uh, is. And uh, it was 2014 when they were an exchange student. So all of the things that went down in Eastern Ukraine could yeah, happen while they were at my high school as an exchange student. And they were Russian speaking as well. Um, and eventually, you know, they, they moved back and they leave that student in Eastern Ukraine. They moved to Russia proper. Um, where it's safer, where they have more opportunities. And that was, that my interaction with them is part of the reason why when I chose a language I knew them, I chose Russian and eventually made it into my major and, and did a, made it have a specialty area for me alongside you know, my political science degree. Um, and now here we are, and, and I'm reporting after all these years again um, on the situation between Russia and Ukraine. And so it has rippling consequences that, you know, there's going to be a generation of people undergraduates in their freshman year right now, we're about to pick up Russian studies programs and are about to enter in specifically because of this conflict because it brought attention to something that's clearly unresolved. And if we take it properly, it will probably take years and decades to work out on the international stage to reform uh, uh, the narrative and structures of the international order. You know, that's not an easy task, it's not a quick, quick task, but it's a task that I think is going to be um, launched and accelerated by yeah, I, I mean, last night when I was talking to you about this, I you volunteered to work and report on um, what's going on last night. Um, things kind of, you know, I, I was reading some tweets that were kind of making light of the situation and making fun of some some things, and uh, you kind of put it in, in a perspective for me that like, yeah, we we can laugh about it, um, but with your connections to this, I think it's kind of, it's almost like, and, and this kind of gets in the conversation of what we talked about in the past about objectivity use. You being so close to this, knowing, knowing people in Ukraine or your friend was, was from Ukraine. Um, I mean, how, how have you felt through all of this? Because like last night you were like, I mean, like there, there are people I know that that are there, and um, I you work with people who are there. So yes. how are you feeling? Just make this more personal. Yeah, I mean, so last last night I think that the only I made some like meme posts or images, um, but the only serious text post when I sat there for a while. And, you know, I I gotta say I, I gotta say something. Like that's a bad urge to have on social media. It feels like you're compelled to say something, but as once again, someone who's dedicated years and years of their life to this specific area, um, who's 
profession is right here. I, I, I almost felt as though I did myself a disservice by not trying. But all I could really think to say was um, I, I, I would favor peace and love. And I, I really um, I'm conflicted and I, in many senses. And I'm just as confused as anyone about um, where things are and where things could go. I really try and remain an optimist and, and hopeful um, about the situation because I really do think there is so much potential um, in a relationship between the U.S. and other global powers. I really do think there's immense benefit for humanity found in multiple worlds. Um, you know, people may say I'm, I'm like overly sympathetic to the Russian view. I'm not Ukraine enough, and it, I really I, I feel for people on both sides of the conflict um, a lot, a lot, because, I mean, every every death in war is a necessary death, right? Um, regardless of who's firing, who started, why it really doesn't matter once people are dying. So it's really into life. Um, I know people, you know, I was worried about one of my buddies who, um, I know he recently got out of, like, the Russian military for his, um, you know, conservative service, like, just, like, you know, a couple months ago. And I didn't know if they were recalling, recalling recently released forces as that's common in major military operations, uh, especially because I knew he was there in the western parts of Russia. And so, like anyone there, especially people who are literally on the ground in Ukraine and Russia, right? The, the harshness of war is undeniable. And um, I don't know exact casualty tolls, once again, it's very unclear trying to get pictures nowadays, but there's undoubtedly had to have been some level of casualty, purposeful um, or incidental. Um, and I don't like it. I don't like war. Um, I don't like that we've gotten to this point. I don't like that Russia launched its um, military operation. I don't like that we put them in a situation where I see the Russian perspective. That's where I might come across as overly sympathetic because I think if there's one thing that, you know, studying and getting a Russian degree and, and going there and learning the people and the culture and, and immersing yourself in the language is to try and put yourself in their shoes. So when something like this happens and Americans and the West are baffled at how Russia can do something like this, that someone who is on both sides of the fence can effectively communicate where both sides stand, how we've gotten here, what the positions are. Um, there's a really great, famous Russian saying from a poem. It's, um, uh, which is um, essentially the you cannot understand Russia by means of money, right? And kind of my, my closing quote for the Russian department program was, you know, they say, uh, they say that you can't understand Russia with the money. Um, I, but I say that through language we can. And so I really believe that having spent time speaking with people in their native tongue, having spent time reading the literature, listening to the music, you get, in a deeper sense than just politics, a perspective, you know, a, a, a piece of the Russian soul, the Ruskaya Dusha that they so often talk about in that kind of a, an ironic sense sometimes, but a sincere one as well. Um, it's hard not to integrate a piece of yourself when you spend so much time. Um, and it's hard not to gain sympathy for, um, for Ukraine as well. I mean, studying Russia, in many senses, you have to study Ukraine. You know, Ukraine has been so integral to Russia. Russia has been integral to Ukraine. You know, they're, they're brother nations at the very least. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of long-winded, but um, 
I don't like anything about it. I only try and stay optimistic and hope we can make the most out of it. Um, because if people, if people are going to die, if conflict was unavoidable, if we are in a moment where we've been forced, whether we like it or not, into self-reflection, um, it would just be a shame if we let that all go to waste. And it's just another conflict that changes nothing about international tensions. That sort of whole thing. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering if you have any uh, more questions or any comments. And um, we have to go over an hour and 39 minutes, but I I could keep going. Um, do you have any more stuff? Not particularly. I think the the biggest key as uh, Ethan was talking about is that that measure of humility and understanding that you know in all likelihood we don't understand and we won't understand you know at least those of us who, who you know you don't the time and you haven't spent the years like put into to determine that and so you know there's no need for the hot takes there's, you know there's no need for the the rushes to judgment the rushes to call for you know war and um, Dave Smith had that that tweet today where it's like um, Someone asked him where where the line was for him, you know, from a libertarian to like be called to call to war or call for war. And he said um, something along the lines of, you know, right, butchering the quote, but you know, I won't ever call for a war that I'm not willing to fight and die in myself. And I think that's that's the line. And you know, I, I think the American perspective, I think it's almost been polluted by the, the social media that we had, you know, 30 years ago, and not to say that they, you know, better or worse sides do, but 30 years ago, you know, these kinds of, we, we, have, we think we have more information than we actually do, and that leads us to think that more, we're more justified in the positions that we have, and therefore more justified in going to more extremes than we probably should. And I think a measure of restraint and humility is important in terms of what we call or advocate for or believe but i think there's also you know uh, both in a measure of personal responsibility as well as social responsibility to call out those same actions in those you know who purport to lead us you know in our in our elected leaders and you know those in positions of authority because they for better or worse are the ones that are going to decide the fate of what happens and if we allow them to get caught up in the same mistakes that we could get caught up in, you know, in that lack of real information and, you know, like kind of a, an American exceptionalism where, you know, a Russian, you know, they're, they're wronged by the Western world and they, they're owed, you know, blood money for this or, or whatever. Like, you need to, I guess, I don't really know what I'm trying to say, but like, rain, rain those they in as well. Like, they should not be overreacting the same way that you shouldn't either. And so, you know, there, there's a sense of, of patriotism and, you know, in some ways a blind patriotism that invades, you know, almost the the nooks and crannies of government. So, you know, it's the fall, the fallback of the U.S. government. The default is, you know, a blind patriotism. And I think kind of, you know, cleaning out those nooks and crannies and realizing, you know, the faults in our own mistakes that have been made in the past and, you know, in order to avoid making mistakes in the future, because at the end of the day, like, the costs are... It's not the cost of, you know, the elites who are, who are trying to instigate this war. Like, those who are paying the price and those who are dying are, you know, those citizens and those, those members of, you know, who live in those war events. I mean, who have families that felt these conflicts for many years. It's not Vladimir Putin. It's not Joe Biden. It's not any of these people who are feeling the effects of it. They're just pulling the strings. 
and it's, you know, causing deaths on the ground. It's causing people to fear their lives of their friends, ruining livelihoods, you know, saying things are going to destroy economy, destroy livelihoods, and, you know, disrupt not just the order of, you know, the geopolitical landscape, but the order of people's lives. And all of that, you know, so you just think very precisely and avoid the hot takes on a situation that I think is beyond the majority of our comprehension, as well as hold those with the power and potentially the information to enact change, hold them responsible. And, you know, don't let them make the same mistakes that the people who held their positions 30 years ago also made. For sure. And, and shortly on that, like, about the information and distrust from our own side as well, you know, like I said, props to the U.S. and talk community for getting this stuff, but it's a rare doubt, right, that they, they get an assessment right. And they've been saying, and the, the Russia was preparing for an invasion, could launch it any day, and that, frankly, is what happened. They did launch a military operation pretty much at, you know, a moment's notice when they wanted to. Um, but they have to really ask themselves, why is it that they were so frustrated on why there was so much skepticism about their reports, why people wouldn't believe their intelligence assessments? And it's like, you really you really have no clue why people wouldn't test your intelligence assessments. Like, your, your batting average isn't exactly um, for intelligence communities. Um, and so it was a boy who cried wolf situation in that sense. And I hope that, once again, in all these moments of self-reflection, her, the intelligence community um, takes that moment of all people, if they could, to self-reflect and realize why, why doesn't the American us. Why do we have to fight to the nail to get them to believe something that we have intelligence about? Mm-hmm. Um, it should be a, an obvious answer, but I guess it's not so obvious to people on the inside, or at least they are maybe not. And how that's intrinsically tied with like the, the corporate press and like CNN and why, why they can't fathom why the American people don't trust them. Um, like Brian Stelter's rant. I don't know if you guys saw it, but he was in I think the word he said was real news. I mean, that was that's the part that I think was fair. Because it's like he, he's making like a an actual like categorical difference between him and, and what Joe Rogan does. And and they're both media, they're both trying to get information out. And I mean, they they've got how many things wrong over the last decade. Um right. and it's uh someone said we envision if this is him, guy, drywall knows, and we envision geopolitical shit like a game of risk, and that steals our soul. Um, I, I, one of the headlines that I read earlier today, I don't have an actual stat, but um, so, so people who don't know where Ukraine is on the map are more likely to support war. And I, that was so interesting because several weeks ago, there was a poll showing the exact Really, which is why I like I hesitate to share that one. I think I shared the other one from a couple of weeks ago, where they found people who could pinpoint Ukraine on a map were more likely to support U.S. engagement. Now, granted, that was in the context of there's just a buildup, and that engagement just means you know whatever. I think they were pulling about both U.S. troops and like general defensive aid to Ukraine, and so maybe sentiment just changed different polling sizes. But the geographic ignorance of Americans is something, it's somewhat of a trope. It's granted overblown sometimes, but it is very, very prevalent that people will have a very strong foreign policy take about something like we talked about, they know much less about than they've led themselves to believe, or even been like 
uh, by someone else that they are an expert because they listen to it. Yeah. And that could have been an edited post too. I, I didn't actually look up the, the article to, to see if it was well, I saw I saw the same one and that's where I noted it because it was literally the opposite of an article um, that I had previously seen here. Um, and that's where from Ron Paul's, you know, um the very fine of the A to Z thing. I think there's a section on statistics that essentially summarizes the like Statistics are as manipulable as anything out there, like any other information. The one, uh, you know, I'm not a formally trained journalist. I only did one journalism class ever in university, and it was numbers as news. The point was about how statistics are so manipulable and uh, variable, and how you use them news depending on what outcome you'd like. And the point was, I thought to be skeptical of stats and news that you see, but it, people could very much take like a evil positive message out of the course about how manipulable stats are in the news. Um, you know, beauty of the eye over the holder, I guess. Um, to, to kind of start to wrap up, I, I was just wondering what you think, um, or how do you think we did in previous podcasts and, and uh, how that aged because, and, and I know that you actually didn't make this mistake, um, but a lot of libertarians made a mistake in saying that um, the United States government was wrong about uh, Russia invading. I mean, I, I think it's, it, it became like a reflex, right? That they, they say that Russia's going to invade. Obviously, this is too propaganda to like, try to justify or try to have a pretext to go to war with Russia. Like, that's, I mean, throughout history, throughout um, the information I know about uh, the, our wars in the Middle East and everything like that, it just became like a reflexive, like, Obviously, the big is up here. And now, I mean, it, it looks like they're right. But then, because we made that one mistake, almost people are le less likely to trust us about everything else, which um, is still right. And, and I believe that the United States still has been very aggressive. And though Putin is very much responsible for everything that, that happened yesterday, um, the United States have been aggressive since the 90s. And um, we, we can't say that we're not responsible for that. Yeah. Um, on our podcast a few weeks ago, I'd say the well, it's a lot of the same background information we talked here. Um, slightly different deep dives on some things, didn't cover some of the things we covered now. Uh, so if you can listen to it if you want, like the first two thirds or so of the podcast recorders. At the end, we we talked about predictions, um, and, and I did say my optimistic hope is that we don't um, see a whole loan invasion. I said if I had to bet my money on it, I wouldn't bet on one. Clearly, um, that was wrong. I even, I think, caveated the possibility this could age like Mel really overnight. Age like Mel for two weeks, which I think is pretty standard for, for Mel. So I'm not, I'll take it where I can. Uh, but uh, once again, I, I do try and and speak optimism into the world to an strange manifestation by the way where I, I really truly believe the more people consciously and subconsciously give themselves to negative possibilities, the more likely they are. Um, uh, but I also said, I believe in that podcast that I don't expect a, a full-blown runover of a kind of blitzkrieg style takeover of the territory. I do think the military operation would be um, relatively targeted, I think, just specifically planned out. I don't think it's as simple as steamrolling a country like we've seen. It's been 
largely targeting strikes on military infrastructure or important pieces of, of comms equipment and the like. Um, so we could still see a full-blown war. Like I said, worst case scenario here, we've got global thermonuclear warfare. Um, but that's such a relatively and unlikely um, picture, I would still say, despite recent developments. Um, the best way to describe that buildup, especially in hindsight, is that whole buildup was meta-ironic. And this is really a crazy thing in very distinct. But it was a meta-ironic invasion in that the the sincerity of it was completely unknown to Russia and the right? I don't think I don't think Putin began his sort of buildup explicitly knowing, thinking, being determined to launch Meta irony is often used to test the waters, to, to put yourself into a different subjective frame to, to test both others' reactions to it and your own. And so, in a sense, I think the buildup was meta ironic. It was largely testing waters, maybe trying to the beta response, seeing what that response would be, seeing how the Kremlin and the Russian people feel in that state. And somewhere along the lines, a decision was made. Uh, maybe it was made from the get-go, but uh, I tend not to think that way. Um, and that they felt comfortable in that position. They saw something. They saw some, uh, you know, uh, gap in the Western armor. They saw some Thing about the response they either didn't like or they really liked something that could help them to move that meta, that, that state of meta ironic military buildup to sincere military innovation, I think was, was a pretty active change on their part. Um, so, um, yes, my, my prediction about it, um, although not entirely incorrect, was somewhat incorrect and did age poorly. Um, but with any luck, my optimism now will not. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, the last thing that I got updated on was that uh, Russia is headed towards Kiev. Um, I don't know what's come of that, and I don't know if you have had any updates, but uh, if either of you want to make some final comments, if you have anything, you can um, say them, and then we can have him have the final comment. Cool. Do you have anything else you want to say? And man, we We've covered a lot. Um, let me try to formulate a really strong conclusion here for us, though. Um, in summary, this whole thing is is far more complex than it would seem on the surface, especially the people being first introduced to this topic. There um, is work to be done as a Western mind to understand the Russian perspective in whole. Um, and from a Russian perspective, it, it would take some work to understand um, ours as well. And I hope that um, through our conversation, we kind of uh, illuminated both of the those positions in a way that is not always presented in the media, in fact, very rarely presented like that in the media. Um, I encourage people to be skeptical but not paralyzed, to be humble both in um, what we can achieve, um, how we can approach this, and in the information that they are uh, processing. Um, I think we're on the precipice of a great change in the world order. Um, I think that this is going to be uh, prompted by a great experience of solid reflection great periods of decision-making about what kind of uh, meta-narratives we would like to see built here um, as the world that we knew in the, in the late 20th and early 20th century kind of dissolves. And um, our duty is to just have conversations like this more because policymakers are negotiating tables, they're writing up sanctions. And so it just has to be regular people like us to do, uh, do the really nitty-gritty work, I guess, and try and actually understand this and make substantive long-term change um, 
or at least try and, and you know orally manifest it into a, uh, a greater possibility. Awesome. Well, we will finish with that. Um, everyone who tuned in, remember to subscri- subscribe to me on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify, all of the other podcasters. And actually, go over to Honesty. Download Honesty if you don't have it. Um, make an account and subscribe to me there and everyone else you follow. Very important project, uh, decentralized, based in cryptocurrency or blockchain. Um, so you own all of your content on Odyssey. Um, and I will be uploading this out in podcast, but it won't be um, it won't be today. Uh, it'll come out tomorrow. So uh, I hope you guys enjoyed this, and we're likely going to do future stuff like this or stuff like this in the future. Thank you.